You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. I'm Edith. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today we will be speaking with Kristen Furman-Simmons. Kristen is a caregiver who resides in Maine and is very involved with LLS's advocacy efforts, working on behalf of blood cancer patients and their families, sharing personal stories and taking action on public policy issues that matter to blood cancer patients and survivors. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much. We're so happy to be here. Awesome. We're happy to have you on. Now, earlier I just mentioned that you are a caregiver. Who is it that you're caregiving for and what was their diagnosis? Certainly. So I actually am a caregiver for my father and he was diagnosed a little over 10 years ago with CLL, so chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And things didn't kick into action until about eight years ago when he was hospitalized with pneumonia. So that's when we really started moving out of that watchful waiting stage and into the active stage. And since that time, he's been through three different uh, treatment cycles and really have been doing really well with his ongoing current treatment. That's good news. At the time, had you ever heard of CLL or had your father heard of CLL or was this completely new for everyone? It was new for our family, but it was not new for both, well, I should say my family, meaning uh, my sister and I and my husband, not new for my parents. My father is a physician, my mom's a nurse practitioner. And at the time, something like CLL, they knew about it, they knew that it was something to take very seriously. Treatment just 10 years ago was very different than from what treatment is now. So we sort of made a very different attitude towards taking care of it then than what we do now. And it's really nice to be able to be part of the progression of how CLL is treated, where many, many patients who have it are now living very healthy, very full, very happy lives with it. Yes, absolutely. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about advocacy and the impact of advocacy and how people can actually get involved when it comes to advocating for patients and survivors and caregivers as well. Being an advocate, it means taking action, and that can look like many different things. How did you decide to get involved with advocacy? I love this question so much because being an advocate has been being the best part of being involved with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. When I first got involved with LLS, I was a team and training runner. I had never trained for a running event in my life, and I ended up signing up for my very first half marathon that eight years ago when my dad began treatment because I needed something to do to get my mind off of the stress of caregiving. And I got involved with the incredible community at LLS, and I got to see people from all different backgrounds, not only on the race course, but people who were doing so many wonderful different things for LLS, not only in raising money for team and training, but I started to talk to people who were doing political advocacy. 
And I'm a person, I teach at the University of Southern Maine. I love to be in front of a crowd of people. So that seed was planted in me eight years ago. And just over four years ago, I decided to take that step as really what felt like a natural progression from team and training and running and doing intensive fundraising to taking that story to not only Capitol Hill, but also to the state house here in Maine and working with local groups of people to raise awareness for what's going on for cancer patients. So it was really a wonderful natural outgrowth for me. And it was a great way to connect with people and tell the story of what was going on, not only with my family, but what it felt like to be part of the community. And I know that my dad, being as sick as he was, it was helpful to have me as his voice so that I could bring forward some of the issues that my family was facing as a result of his treatment. Absolutely. And that's so beautiful to hear. I remember reading an article and it said, advocates are upholders, they're protectors, they're champions. There's a number of different adjectives that they also associate with that. I think they also said promoters and backers and proponents. And like you said, when your dad was very sick, he found comfort in knowing that there was someone who he knew advocating on his behalf. And I think that's the beauty of advocacy is that you're able to uphold a change or uphold a voice that may have been silenced by a diagnosis and bring that to the forefront of people who may not be that connected to the actual ground, you know, have their foot on the ground and seeing what's happening in real time, I guess you could say. It's really interesting that you bring that up. I think that for me, becoming an advocate changed the way that I think about politics. It made me really understand that my voice mattered and that the people who were enacting legislation were people that I could have a face-to-face conversation with. They weren't people who were just out there or people who were on TV, that it really mattered what I had to say and that what I had to say was backed up by the research and support and statistics and all of the wonderful work that LLS does. And I really was able to be the one that brought a lot of that to life. And it made me feel so much better about being active politically and really feeling like uh, we had the ability to affect change. So it was powerful really all around. Absolutely. And what sort of training did you receive from LLS? Well, yeah, it's something that I had a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, which was wonderful. <laughs> That's um, you can tell that, right? <laughs> it, it was a great start. But we ended up connecting me with a wonderful woman named Jen McSherry here in the Northeast of the United States. And Jen worked with another individual named Steve Butterfield here. And the two of them together really helped me understand policy issues. I was terrified that somehow, uh, you know, I knew that I was outgoing and that I could tell my parents' story and tell the story of what had happened to our family, but I was worried that I wouldn't be able to substantiate what I was saying with that research and the facts and all of those things. And I was like, I have to memorize all this stuff. They said, no, you don't. <laughs> that's, and that's where the training at LLS came in. They said, we are there to support you. We are going to walk in there with you. We have long-term relationships with many of these legislators. You were there really to tell your story. And that was the baseline that they helped set for me. And everything else from there was just really learning about how to grow the relationship and really relying on LLS's expertise in the protocol, meaning how do we schedule those meetings? What do we say when we get into those meetings? How do we follow up so that that story continues to make an impact? And that was something that they really walked me through. And again, meeting them halfway already with that passion and interest, all of that other support that they offered me, it just felt easy. And they were so incredibly supportive and enthusiastic about having me there that it really became a wonderful relationship and something that continues to grow. 
Absolutely. And I think you highlight a great point. Those who might be interested in advocacy might think to themselves, okay, well, before I do this, I have to know facts and figures. I have to memorize charts and graphs and really have everything together before I begin this journey. And I think you make a good point that they will be helped throughout this process. And it begins with one, enthusiasm, which you mentioned, which is great. <laughs> and also your story, your personal story. I mean, that's what it boils down to. And that's what the motivation is. You shed light on a great fact that you don't have to have everything in place and memorized and informed about all sorts of, you know, diagnoses and treatments, but really just coming with your story and allowing LS to help get that journey going and being that resource for you. Absolutely. And that's where the greater team at the policy office really helps to support you. I mean, they had everything not only from the protocol of what it's like to go in the office, but they had a team helping us with how to post on social media how to talk about and directly make contact with your senators and your House of Representatives through things like Twitter and through things like Facebook. So they really provided a very, it was like an open door. And it was a wonderful thing that as long as you wanted to walk through it and realize it's again, coming back to that idea that our story as caregivers, as patients, as survivors, that's the thing that brings all of that research to life. That's the thing that matters most because that story it gets into the mind of that staff, of that senator, of that person, and then they can take that story and see how that legislation really affects real people in their districts. So, again, it was really that emphasis on teamwork and that they were there to support me, and I've just really appreciated that from day one. And what was your family's reaction when they found out that you were going to speak with the lawmakers about some of the issues that they struggled with? Oh, <laughs> Oh, I love that you asked that because my dad and I have a wonderful, we have an academic relationship, we have an intellectual relationship, and it's something my dad has spent a lot of time writing to his senators over his entire lifespan. And when I first told my dad that I was going to be spending a day on the Hill, he cried. And my dad is a very emotional person, and he was so happy that I could take his story to Capitol Hill. And of course, he gave me a bunch of letters that he wanted me to share <laughs> directly with our legislators here in Maine. It was just such a special moment. And my mom, too, was very proud because it's one of those things, again, where it is so important to feel like you feel heard. It's so important to feel like the things that stress you are really understood at the national level. And my parents, really were having a very difficult time financially and paying for my dad's uh, life-saving new cutting-edge treatment. Mm -hmm. And at the time that I decided to go into advocacy, it was very important, my dad is on Medicare, that our legislators understood that these life-saving treatments are available, but yet they were not affordable. And yeah. so getting that message out, I became an extension of that reality for my family, and they were really proud. Yeah. I was reading this article about someone who had a similar reaction in that she was an advocate for her mother in this case, and she had this diagnosis and she was doing fairly well, but she was on a life-saving drug as well, in which she knew that this could be it. This could be the drug that saves her mother's life and actually improve her quality of life dramatically. And she advocated for those who aren't able to afford this type of life-saving drug because not everybody can. That's the reality of it. And that's many stories of patients and that something is available. And it's a horrible thought to think that if something is available and can save lives, you also may not be able to actually attain that said drug 
because of cost. So it's interesting that you bring that up because it's it's a similar story to so many people and so many families. Absolutely. Uh, One of the first times I was in a room with fellow advocates down in D.C., we had patients, survivors, caregivers from all over the country. I told the story of how when my dad, again, we talked a little bit earlier about treatment for CLL when he first started was an IV therapy. And it was it's something that while it saved his life, it was something that necessitated him retiring from his practice. He's a longtime family physician and internist and his life is seeing his patients and being able to treat people in a clinical setting. This is a big part of his identity. So giving that up and taking this kind of treatment, it was a very difficult trade-off for my father. He did very well on it, but of course for two years, he was not able to work. Things settled down, but then his leukemia came back and the option was either this one IV therapy or oral chemo. And we knew that with the oral chemotherapy, he would be able to go back to work. He'd be able to live the life he wanted for quality of life, right? This is a story we hear all the time. Right. He could go back and be in that setting and feel fruitful and feel like he was using his intellect and his skill set. Or he could go back on this IV therapy because it was something that was completely covered. And we knew we had to do everything we could because he was in such an emotional state. We knew we had to do everything we could to help get him that medication. And I mentioned something to this group of people. I said, has anybody here looked around their house and thought about things they could sell in order to get the medication? And the amount of hands that went up in that room were too many hands, right? Too many people raised their hands at that moment. And I realized how impactful that story was. And it wasn't just us that had to deal with that. It was a majority of people in that room who had to look around and say, how can we access this care? And I knew, okay, if it's more than just our family, if it's everybody in this room, then our legislators need to hear this. They need to understand that we need to make sure we have things like oral parity, which we now do, which is very, very exciting. So again, coming back to that idea where this issue is one thing when you're home alone and when you're in your state, you think that you're by yourself and you're absolutely not. And it's really powerful to get into that group of people and to get with other advocates and people who have experienced the same thing that you have and you realize that, okay, here's an issue. We need to talk about it. We need to raise awareness and we need to make change. Right. I think your stories make it real for people, including legislators. I think that people can read about it. People can hear somebody talk about it. But when you make it feel real to someone, I think that's when the real change comes. Absolutely. It's interesting that you mentioned that, and I'll tell a funny side story. So after my first year of becoming an advocate with LLS, my dad and I were invited to a local meeting here in the state of Maine with our independent Senator Angus King. And my dad decided to bring one month's supply of medication with him to show Angus King and to really make a quite visceral point about what $12,000 in this particular medication looks like. And it's very small. And Angus King stopped when my dad shook this medication. He's like, I want you to show you what $12,000 looks like. Angus King stopped and talked to my dad for almost five minutes, which for a senator is a big deal. This is a room filled with people. And we heard that story echoed back to us that since I've gone back to Angus King's staff every subsequent visit, He's like, oh, your dad's the guy with the medication in the room, right? Because it made, wow. it made an impact. <laughs> him and say, Here is what $12,000 looks like. 
And again, just reiterating that point is that really bringing it to life, showing people that, you know, my dad, my parents, both of them, they're in the healthcare field. They did well in their lives, but nobody can afford $12,000 a month in medication. And it really made quite a visual impact as well as an emotional impact by just showing that. So again, really the power of story, the power of realness and that connection, coming back to how key it is for patients and caregivers and survivors to really share that because that's what really drives it home. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, every time I think about advocacy, the phrase that always comes into my head is from paper to people. It's weird because it pops into my head and I'm thinking because it's one thing to read the budget and look at numbers regarding how much a drug will cost and read the context about why it costs that much and in theory, okay, you understand that. But then when you actually hear the story, when you shake that medication bottle, that's when you take all of those words and you say, what are we going to really pay attention? What are we going to follow? Who are we going to help? You know what I mean? And I think it's so important for people to understand that it's the people part of it that makes voices heard and action be taken and really change to be made for those who need it the most. I mean, when someone is diagnosed, the last thing they should have to think about is advocating for why they need something to stay alive, right? So I think it's such great work that advocates do. And I think that once people realize that it's digestible, it's not a huge mountain. <laughs> it can be something that people come on board with and this power in numbers. And so it's a beautiful thing to even hear your story and know that there's so many people like you just stepping up and doing the work. Yeah. And the fun part about being an advocate too is that when you walk into these offices, you're with people from your state. You're with your LLS team. You're not alone. And once you get over that hump of the first visit, right, you, you're nervous. You're like, it's your very first day. You have to go through security at the Hart Senate building. And it's big and it's white marble. And there's a giant Calder Black Mountain statue in the middle. Of it. I mean, it's very impressive and slightly intimidating. And you realize that you walk into these offices and you see all of this wonderful memorabilia from your state. You see other people from different organizations in there. It's a very proactive and congenial environment. Many times I've gone in, for example, back to Angus King, he has this blueberry bread tea time with his constituents. I didn't know that this happened, but I happened to walk in on one when I first went <laughs> into the advocacy office. And of course, I got dry mouth. And I'm not a person that I speak a lot for a living. I got dry mouth. I started to cry immediately. I was worried that I was a, just a mess when I got into the office. And my LLS team was around me. They're like, no, that was perfect. That was perfect. <laughs> because, again, it brought it all to life. And once you get over the hump of that first visit and then you see other LLS advocates wearing their red, wearing their blood drop pins on their lapels, and you see them in the hallways of the Senate building and you high five when you're on the way through, it feels so powerful and it's awesome and then when the day is done of course you're exhausted but you have a great dinner and you just really enjoy your time and you realize that what you have done you've showed up you showed up for people that can't physically show up you showed up for people who may otherwise be afraid but you're there and you're making it happen and it's such an important part of really bringing the mission of LLS to life absolutely so you're really working as a team then? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Whenever there's an advocate day on the Hill or even when someone does advocacy at a state level, you work with the LLS team that's part of your district. 
those leaders who are, are part of your region show up and go with you to the state house. Now, there are some advocates who are seasoned vets who coordinate with their LLS team and say, I'm going to go out and have a meeting. But that's further down the road for a lot of advocates. The majority of the time, when you go to the Hill, you are absolutely with a full team and you have a chance to meet with the entire country's team first and practice your talks, practice the way that you're going to tell your story. You have a chance to hear other people's reflections. So again, you're never alone. And we all, I should say, we suit up. Everybody wears red <laughs> in some form, right? Mm-hmm. We take great pictures and we make sure that we have a chance to connect with each other throughout that advocacy day so that we share the energy, share the stories, and really lift one another up. So we know you're comfortable speaking in front of an audience, but what would you say to someone who's interested in becoming an advocate, but feels a little bit more intimidated by the idea of speaking with a politician? Yeah. Oh, it's the terror is real. And even for somebody <laughs> that what I noticed, and I'll give an example, I had an opportunity last year to go out with a woman who was, was the very first time on the Hill, and she was extremely nervous. And I just turned to her and I said, Michelle, I will be there with you every step of the way. And if you forget what to say, we have practiced enough together beforehand, which is part of the whole program when you become an advocate, that I knew her story, that I could ask questions of her if she forgot. For example, I would say, Michelle, can you tell a little bit more to Senator so-and-so about when you first got diagnosed so that I was her wingman, so to speak? And that put her at ease so that I was someone who could be her partner. And again, you have that kind of partnership when you go and work with the advocacy team so that you're really ping-ponging questions off of one another. Most every single time I've gone into a legislator's office, it has been one where it is conversational. And I try to stress that with everybody. The staff members that you're meeting with are there to really listen to you and they care for the majority majority of the time. <laughs> so the nice part is, is that if you forget something, you can say, oh, I forgot something, or, oh, I'm sorry, I'm turning into a blubbery mess and crying all over your office, or this is really important to me, and I'm sorry, I've dry mouth. Do you have a glass of water? And oh. every single time you've been treated with respect. So again, you're not alone, and it's okay to be in there and be real and be yourself. The ending part of every single session when you go in, your LLS team is there with a packet of information, and they always direct that legislator or that legislative team member to that packet that contains everything in regards to the bills that we're looking to support so that they have all that information in hand and that our job as volunteer advocates is to get that card, write that follow-up letter, and to leave with a smile and a sense of gratitude to have that time. That's great. So like Alicia said, you don't have to feel that you have to memorize all of these things about which legislation you're talking about or anything like that. No, not at all. You want to be familiar with it. But again, part of the training before you get out onto the Hill is to understand what we refer to as the ask, right? So that we understand that, for example, this year when we go out, we're asking for cap on out-of-pocket expenses for patients who are on Medicare, or we're asking for an end to surprise billing. And your LLS team will let you know if your senator or your congressperson is in support of it or who's on the fence. Many times, issues with LLS, but not always, 
have bipartisan support, which makes things really nice <laughs> because we can all agree that people should get quality to good health care. I shouldn't, it's not true for everybody, but for the most part, we've seen a lot of positive support for what LLS is doing. So again, you're not in there on your own and you have a packet of information in front of you that's spelled out so clearly. It's basically like a cheat sheet that you can look, to, it's your clip notes that you can say, aha, this is Bill if you feel like you want to say that, but you don't have to. And then there's a synopsis that's sitting right in front of you so that if you completely blank out during your meeting, which may have happened to someone I know, maybe it was me, I'm just saying, you can refer back to that sheet of paper and come back to that. But again, that's not going to make or break you. That doesn't take away from the impact if you forget, because it's still all there for them at the end. And you have a chance to follow up. Kristen, what was it like visiting Congress for the first time? Ooh, yeah, that's a great question. I will never forget my first time walking in to meet with my state senators. The first person that I met with, again, I think that I talked about the fact that I walked right into their blueberry bread and tea conversation. And I sat down and I felt like, wow, I'm here, I'm on, it's showtime. And immediately I started to cry. And I realized that that crying to me was more of a signal of the passion and intensity that I had felt for six years of my dad being sick. And I just asked for a box of Kleenex and one of the legislative aides came over and gave me some Kleenex and squeezed my hand. And then I knew right away that it was going to be all right and that I could keep going. And it was wonderfully supportive. The team member I had with me from LLS just smiled at me. She said, you've got this. And that's just to give everybody who's listening an idea of just what a camaraderie is there and what a supportive environment is there. That's exactly what it was like. So once I got that initial flood out, I was fine. And I was lucky that it was with one of my senators from Senator King from the state, who's a, a congenial person. My second visit was with the office of Susan Collins, much more formal. And it turned out that the young woman that I was speaking to happened to be the cousin of one of my team and training teammates. Oh, wow. It was fantastic because it was like throwing her a softball. It was wonderful. She said, oh, I've heard of your running team. Your running team does these crazy multi-day 5K, 10K, half-day, half-marathon events. So it was almost like a divine intervention came into the middle of that meeting and said, oh, you have an easy opening with this woman because she had heard about our team and training running team. So that made that mean. Now, that does not happen often. But again, that was my very first visit with our senators here from Maine. And so it made it a lot easier. And it made me realize how those staff members were meeting me as conversationalists. They want to know where you're from. Understanding that you're a constituent is a big part of this. So really bringing to life where you live in the state and making chit chat about where you're from goes a long way and really easing the tension around the state. So when I recommend to all advocates, when you get into those meetings that you can ask questions like, where are you from in the state? Sometimes those staff members are not necessarily from the state, but you can let them know where you're from and what's going on. It really is a great way as an icebreaker because then you get down to the heart of the matter and you get over that nervousness. And then by the afternoon, when you have your afternoon meetings, and it depends on if you're meeting with Senate first or House of Representatives, it feels much easier. But again, allowing yourself that grace and space to let yourself be emotionally expressive 
potentially the first time. There are a lot of other people who've done that same exact thing that very first time that they've met with somebody, but then you move through it and you realize that you have the power and you have that chance to connect. And yeah, it was much less intimidating the second, third, and then fourth time around. So, (laughs) but yeah, I turned on the waterworks the first time. I didn't even realize. And and it was funny because the woman that I was with, she's like, it ended up being perfect. It was the perfect person to cry with because it's all okay. I was like, great, great. I'm glad it worked out well. And I love that you talk about the personalities and environment of when you went, because I think it's important to remind people that politicians are people too. And so, I mean, instead of being intimidated and I mean, it's natural, of course, but I think this also reminds people that you're telling your story to another person who may or may not be able to relate. However, they're just a person. I think reminding yourself of that helps to get through the process a little better or a little more at peace than going in and being completely dismayed. Right. Yeah. Or starstruck where you just don't even know what to say. I think you you bring up a really great point is that every single staff member or even senator or congressperson I've talked to, they're happy to chit chat. Now, granted, you don't want to take up your entire time with chit chat, but it it really (laughs) helps you to understand the humanity of who they are. Many of these offices are filled with great things that you can look at and be like, oh, I've been there or I've eaten that food or I've tried this thing. So it's a great way to kind of look around and say, this is this is the person from my home state. They want to connect with me. And again, as you mentioned, they're humans too. They want to hear from you. They want to connect with those stories. And unfortunately, we are in a situation where blood cancer is so incredibly prevalent that once we start telling the story of what happens is that many of our politicians can connect with it quickly and easily because they know somebody who's been affected by blood cancer, and they understand that impact, and they're hearing from patients all the time. One of the things that our team of Jen and Stephen, we've really emphasized, and I know this happens with teams all across the country with LLS, every time we leave those offices, we really make a point to say to that staff member, to that senator, to the congressperson, you are going to have constituents that have blood cancer who need resources. If anything else happens today and we open up the door for you and your constituents to have support, please reach out to us because we are here too. It's a two-way street. So, of course, we're there to do the ask in terms of legislation, but we're also there as a way to say you and your constituents need to know that LLS is there for you. We have so many programs that support caregivers. We have so many programs that can support patients who are in need with uh, understanding the pathway to care. We have programs for patients who can't afford their medications. We want to get the word out. And that's been a really interesting part of advocacy as well, is that I've had staff members reach out to me and say, you know what, I've had some people call about this. Who do we call at LLS to make that connection for this group of townspeople or this town nurse or this particular leader? And that's a wonderful relationship that has started as a result of the advocacy program. So that's somewhat secondary, but it happens. And we really make a point to say, you know, we have something to offer as well. We are here to support your community. And we really make a point of really uplifting all of the different programs that LLS has to offer so that people become more aware of the access they have to care. They're actually helping their constituents by getting them to us for support and assistance. So that's really important. Yeah, it was 
how I first heard of LLS was a flyer that was sitting in the emergency department of Maine Medical Center. And someone had left it there, and it was, do you want to run a race? It was a TNT purple flyer. And I picked it up, and this two hours after my dad was admitted to the emergency department, I was signed up for my first half marathon. Wow. One of those things, you're, like, you're in this moment of family crisis. Would you want to sign up for a half marathon? Well, it was at Disney World. It seems like a lot of fun. <laughs> it, it gave me a great connection. And I think what has happened as a result of being part of LLS is being able to spread the word to other people that, especially in the caregiver role, what has been so important to me is to connect with other people that understand not just the stress, but the real desire that we have to improve people's lives that I am so interested in, of course, helping my dad and helping him feel better and helping him get everything from his groceries to get back to his quality of life and gardening and seeing his own patients, but also so that when people are in that moment of fear, of crisis, where everything feels like it's shutting down around them, that they feel like they have someone they can talk to. And it happened for me. And so I want other people to feel like it can be a reality for them too. And it's so nice to be able to get involved at any point where you don't necessarily have to go run a half marathon, but you can, it's amazing. And you can come and be an advocate if you want to be as well. You don't have to be comfortable in front of a crowd. You can be comfortable just sitting one-on-one with somebody because you'll have that same kind of support from LLS no matter if you're gregarious or if you're a wallflower, you can have both. So that's nice. I love that. Yeah. And one thing you're saying, and one thing that I think is really important is that you're a caregiver and we do have our caregiver community. And it's really important for our caregivers to know that, yes, you can be an advocate. It's not just patients telling their own stories you're also part of that story. So it's very important just to know that patients as well as caregivers are invited to be part of our advocacy team. Absolutely. I would love to see caregivers come forward and be able to share what has happened for them, what they have seen, because we have really dealt with so much in terms of helping to navigate cancer care as a whole. We understand and see the stress in a very different way than our loved ones see it. And it's really important that our legislators understand the holistic impact of what cancer does to a family, to a community, to well-being overall. And I think meeting together with other people who've been in the same situation like me and my own family I know that that's a story that needs to be heard because there's so many different things that people have had to deal with. And really, we want those nuances. We want those details. We want the things that maybe we're not seeing already. Maybe we need to become aware of other facets of cancer care that aren't yet coming to life to really round out how we can become better advocates for the cancer community as a whole. So I firmly feel like Calling all caregivers out there right now who want to become advocates. I'd love to have you with us. I'd love to have you be part of this. Definitely. Kristen, how has your day job in marketing helped you be a more effective advocate? Oh, that's such a great question. 
one of the things I realize is so important is the use of whatever tools we have in our toolbox. I do a lot of marketing through digital media, so social media, blogging. It's a big part of what I help my clients with. So I've really understood the impact of those platforms and how they're a wonderful way to share the story of what's going on in cancer care, and they have an immediate feedback so that people can see what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. Every time I've gone out and done any work with advocacy, I always make sure that I'm posting about it and doing videos about it. And I also understand that it's a way that we can immediately get in touch with our legislators where in the past we had good old-fashioned letter writing, which I still absolutely advocate for, or we had op-eds and editorials and newspapers. But I think coming from a background in digital marketing, I understood that there was an immediate return with being able to reach out on social media, but there were responses happening a lot more quickly as a result of reaching out on platforms like Twitter, even Facebook. And also coming from the marketing world, I understood how to craft that message. Video is huge. And the more that we as advocates and LLS as a whole are sharing through video and even photos, the more we're giving a visual to that story, the better the algorithm. And I, coming from the digital marketing world, I understand the algorithm and how important it is to get top of mind in the mind of the public. So really, I brought those skills to bear in how I advocate for cancer care. Kristen, can you tell us a little bit more about your meetings with lawmakers in May? Certainly. So this year it was a little bit different because we didn't go to the Hill per se, and we just had telephone calls with our legislators. And it was a little bit different because we packed everything into one day where in the past we typically have a three-day event where we'll arrive, then we have our day on the Hill, and then we have a follow-up meeting. But this year we packed everything into one day, and we had not only our training from the policy office, but best practices training where we were able to pull in advocates who had had experience being on the Hill before to share with the new advocates in our group. And then we broke out and we talked to our legislators over the phone. The same thing that had happened in previous years where we got on these calls as a team and we practiced beforehand with who was going to go first who would make the introductions so that the storytelling and the flow of that conversation would go easily. And every single person, every single legislator or staff member showed up on time to those meetings. We made plans for follow-up. So it was a little bit different because we didn't get that face-to-face time. The calls were much shorter than our face-to-face meetings typically are in person. But this year uh, was a little bit different as well in that we were really looking for to support issues that are affecting people in the healthcare community as a whole. So in the past, we were asking for legislation around supporting things like, as I mentioned, oral parity for new chemotherapy drugs that were coming out and making sure that those were covered under a prescription benefit versus a hospital benefit. This year, we were advocating for a cap of -of out-of-pocket costs for Medicare Part D and also asking for an end to surprise billing. Surprise billing has been an issue that has affected people across the board in the healthcare setting where they're getting egregious surprise bills where all of a sudden something will pop up for a treatment that they were not made aware of, and then they end up with this monstrous bill that they cannot cover. And luckily, we're in a position where 
many of the folks, at least that I met with um, on the day on the Hill, were in support of making sure that we put an end to surprise billing, that patients would not be held responsible for those surprise and egregious bills out of pocket. So, again, it was a little bit different, but we kept that same plan of action where we really work together as a team and we practice as a team. We use the tools of technology available to us, like our online webinar breakout rooms. We were able to meet face-to-face with some of the other folks who were in our districts and, of course, then in our state. And we practiced with the people that we were going to be making those phone calls with so that we kept alive that energy and camaraderie and, of course, that training that's so important to help everybody who's a volunteer advocate feel that level of support. Kristen, you mentioned how advocacy looked a bit different this year due to the current COVID-19 pandemic. For those who may be interested in advocacy but unsure of what that looks like now, what has this new experience been like for you? Is it mostly phone calls and online meetings? So that's one part of it for sure. And I think for the time being, I think that that's where it will live. I think in many ways we're looking to exercise our advocacy in that digital space. And we really talked heavily about coming back to some of our outlets that we had not exercised before. So this year, for example, we talked heavily about things like editorials and op-eds and soliciting that kind of coverage for the issues that we are hoping to talk to our communities about. In the past several years, we've relied more on face-to-face appointments for social media, but we really took some time this year to really put forward the fact that some of these older forms of media are still incredibly powerful. And because we have to make this shift where we're not able to meet in real life, to take the time to put together that op-ed for your newspaper or your letter to the editor and what that looks like. We had a wonderful training this year from a team that really helped us to construct step-by-step what that is. So it was really nice to be able to feel empowered to do so because many of us have not done that level of writing in the past. So that was nice to come to that because we aren't, unfortunately, we're not going to have that chance to do face-to-face for the time being. And until we come back to that, we need to really exercise. We need to use all the tools in our toolkit. We did emphasize this year more robust social media and trying to teach people more about using video, which is exciting for me because I love seeing people tell their story online. Awesome. Thank you. What do you hope to achieve this year in terms of policy reforms? Oh, so many things. Policy is always on my mind. (laughs) I'm really interested in seeing the continuation of that cap on out-of-pocket costs for Medicare Part D and cap on out-of-pocket costs across the board for patients. Many of our life-saving treatments that we have helped to support the development of at LLS need to be affordable for the people that need to have them. And I want to make sure that patients have access to them in ways that won't cause them undue stress. And unfortunately, we have a situation where we have so many of our patients who are not filling their prescriptions because they can't afford them. And I'd like to see that end. So, again, moving towards that cap on out-of-pocket costs, especially in an arena like Medicare Part D, is something that I will continue to be pushing towards because, again, we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that we have access right now to medications that have completely changed the quality of life for cancer patients, conditions that have turned once fatal things into chronic 
conditions. And I don't want to say that across the board because I know everybody's different, but we now have the opportunity to extend time, right? That's the thing. That's the most important thing is giving us time. And the use of those medications are what give us that precious time to be together. And I think that each of us is focused heavily right now on the quality of our lives and how important that is. And affordability is key now more than ever because many of us are shifting in what our healthcare coverage is. We have a lot of people in very flux state of what's happening with their own work. So again, these kinds of things, making sure that our patients have access to those life-saving treatments in an affordable way is huge for me in terms of what I will continue to advocate for. Awesome. Kristen, on our website, we have a slogan that says, or a motto that says, after diagnosis comes hope. If you were to finish that sentence, what would you say? Just based off of your experience with advocacy or just your family experience, how would you finish that sentence? After a diagnosis comes After diagnosis comes opportunity. And I don't know if you can hear the waterworks starting for me because I am filled up when I say that because we had the opportunity to examine how we were as a family, what we were focusing on, what really mattered to us. And as difficult as cancer can be, it's also filled with the opportunity to really come back to love and to connection and to understanding that the things that matter are being together and having time together. And so that's an incredibly powerful thing. And when you focus on that, that can drive you through anything. So fundraising, advocacy, caregiving, all the things that happen as part of the cancer diagnosis. So I feel very strongly that after the diagnosis of CLL came real opportunity for my family, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. That's so beautiful. Kristen, thank you for everything that you're doing and those that you've inspired to become an advocate, everything that you've done with and for LLS and for telling the story of not only you, but of your family. And we're so happy to hear how well your father is doing. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. And I feel so grateful to be able to continue to tell the story and to hopefully inspire other caregivers that are out there to get involved with advocacy. It's a ton of fun and it's really empowering. You inspired me. So, Kristen, for those listening who are very interested in becoming an advocate, how can they do that? What's the process? There are two ways they can become an advocate, and it's very easy. Toe in shallow end of the pool, which is a great way to go, is to become part of the mobile action network where you can go online to the LLS advocacy site, which is advocacy.lls.org, and you can sign up to get mobile alerts for what's happening right in your state. And you can become an advocate directly from your phone. Once you're prompted, you can send messages to your senators or your congresspeople right there from your phone and let them know how important these issues are to you. If you want to take it a step further, you can sign up directly on the site, too, and one of the LLS advocacy team members will reach out to you, talk to you about your story, and see how you want to get involved either as a face-to-face advocate once we open back up to -to face-to-face meetings, but also to share your story online. So there are two great ways to get started. If you're gung-ho and you really want to go all in, I highly recommend going to the website. Everything is there. It's spelled out for you. And if you just want to start with the mobile action network, that is a great way to go because that makes a huge impact too. 
Awesome. Yes. Thank you, Kristen. And for those, again, who'd like to become an advocate or would like to read more about advocacy overall, you can visit www.lls.org forward slash advocacy. Thank you so much for joining us, Kristen. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time. Thank you.